questions first, or you want to do those towards the end? I'm not never sure. Let's do. Let's start out with questions. We don't ever start with questions. Be, I know. Okay, let's good. do that. I don't have them, so you you got them queued up here. Yeah, we have. Well, we have one <laughs> that's not really Salesforce related, so we'll get that one out of the way. Okay. Uh, this one's from David Litton. He did give us permission to use his name. Okay. And he wants to know uh, what's so uh, what's the trick to John's ice cubes? How mm. how's he make the best ones? Do that's I make the question. Do I make the best ice, Jeremy? Well, <laughs> well, the question. Given, given the resources you have available to you, I would say you make some good ice. The resources I have available. Yes, I don't have a you know water table that. It doesn't have a fifty thousand like, dollar freezer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, I I do enjoy clear ice. I like the way they look. Uh, there's not too oh, much of a benefit to them so other I'm, than. Hang on one second. Salesforce. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I I monogram my ice with Salesforce. Okay, so there we go. There you go. Yeah, got to tie it back. I set up a trigger that uh, calculate. No, no, not, I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, but no, I, I, you know, I started getting into cocktails, and so I wanted to get into making clear ice because I think it looks better. Uh, I don't know any other benefit other than that. I mean, some people say that the it's more pure because you push impurities out. Some you people say get a it's slightly slower melt on really slower solid melt. Ice, yeah, because right? it, it, it won't crack, or at least at least if you're talking about the spheres and, and the. A like, huge aspect of cocktail is the visual, right? A good yeah. cocktail. I yeah. mean, just have a beautiful cocktail. Yeah, so. or, or striking or something unique about it. You know, right. th- these um, these long, like, either ingots of ice or the big rods, you know, that's become a thing, like, in a in a tall, like, Collins glass, the big, uh-huh. the, the rod of ice has become a thing. But to have that be completely clear, I mean, it's, it's kind of striking. Yeah. And it just, it just signifies an attention to detail that, in your brain, I think you, you, you just assume bleeds over into the quality, quality of the right. flavor of everything everything else about that it. it's somehow purer because you, you see the, just, the you just see the attention paid to the detail and you yeah. you know it just it's part of the whole thing i mean you can have a great tasting cocktail but if it looks like garbage then it's just going to detract from it you know just like you know if someone serves you a, a steak and it's like gray and gross looking i mean it doesn't matter how <laughs> good that tastes if it looks gross that's just not gonna so, slimy and gray you know so, so, wants, you, so you you advocate for uh, grocery stores to Inject their uh, meats with pink. Oh, not at all. So that they don't look gray. Well, I mean, if listen, if a raw piece of meat, beef is not red and pink on the inside, something's wrong. (laughs) I thought I heard somewhere that that some stores actually do that. that Well, that's usually illegal, and I think it's illegal in most Mm. places. And also, like uh, pink or red colored lights are also illegal. Oh, the more you know. Yeah. Where are you with that soundboard? Um, Where am I? Well, what is that called? First of all. The more you know. Is that called PSA? There you go. <laughs> but, you know what? When you have to do that much work, it, it loses its impact. Here's what I understand. When I pull this <clears throat> clip up in Finder, it tells me that the name of that is 2 colon, It's Nice to Get a Payday, which I'm guessing is the n- title of our number two episode. <laughs> why is it titled? Why does it show me that? I have no idea, but let's see what it sounds like. Here we go. That's it. Was that you that did that? But if I hit Command I and go into it, the file name is Happy PSA Ending MP3. So it's very confusing. Sorry. Like I said, I'm not a professional. I just <laughs> pretend like I'm one. <laughs> well, not to spend too much time on this topic, yeah. but uh, so yeah, no, there are two things. There are two things I use to do this. I have I have a system that makes clear spheres, and then I have a system that makes. Um, a long cube, and the cube—it's not a cube. It's I'm sorry, a it's a rectangle, right? It's like right. An ingot. 
it's a rectangle, but the reason I say cube is because half of it is going to be clear and the other half is going to be cloudy. And that's just because of the way it it, uh, it works. And so you can crack it halfway and you can have your, your clear cube. And you, just, you usually just discard the non-clear part, right? No, I don't. I actually keep it, but I use give, it. Give that to your kids? No, I actually I actually do use it. <laughs> give it to the dog. Throw it to the dog. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I I, uh, I will crush that or I will I will cube it and use it in something. Like if I'm going to make a drink that I need a shaker and need some ice in it, oh, then okay. I'll use that yeah. ice for it. Yeah, so I'll go. keep it uh, and then I'll bring it out for that stuff. But when I'm actually making the cocktail, I'll, I'll use the clear ice because, of course, presentation. Right. Um, but, I mean, the real secret to, to clear ice is really kind of freezing in one direction so that you push air bubbles and impurities out and you end up with just a clear block. Uh, so that, that that's what these te- these things, all these tools that I'm about to mention do. Can we put a link in the show notes to this thing? Yeah, so is, I, ha- I have two of them. Is this this, now, you got me one of these, the, the rectangle yeah, ice that, thing for Christmas one year. Is it, do you still use the same one? I do, yeah. Okay. And that one's from Studio Neat. Can, and we, that, link, can we link that up in the show notes? I'm going to link that in the show okay. notes. That one's from Studio Neat. And what it is, is, is you get this silicone mold that you put the water in, but it also comes with this insulator that you put it into. And that's what kind of helps uh, the freezes it slowly. It freezes right? it slowly, yeah. right? Um, so, so there's that. Uh, and then the other one that I use to make the clear ones, that one's made by uh, Wintersmiths, and they actually have some new ones that I found when I went to research this and look it up. They actually have a double, a double ball maker. <laughs> <laughs> Two balls is better than one. <laughs> two, ball, but I just got the one ball, so <laughs> I'm looking to get the two ball. Um, but that that's just a cylinder cup. Um, and you fill it with water, and it's got the mold, in it, and that'll do that too. So I'll put both those in the show notes, so you guys can uh, up the the wow factor of your cocktails. Yep. It's all about presentation. Hey, life's too short to drink a cloudy ice, right? Or it to, is. Yeah. It is. <clears throat> all right. Well, thanks, David. Uh, another one came from. Oh, he didn't say if we can use his name out, so I'm not going to use it. Um, but I think we talked about this. He said he hadn't heard of this before, uh, but it was about uh, Dropbox Paper, and I think you brought that up one time. And I did. And I, I remember discussing it because I said, you know, one of the hurdles they're going to have is advertising this product because I, you know, most people, when they think of Dropbox, they don't think of these type of tools. But it is a, you know, quip competitor. Um, and from what I've seen of it, at least from the advertising and everything, it looks you haven't pretty well done. I haven't played with it. Because you're a big Dropbox guy. Speaking of that, my I can't think we talked about this a few months ago, but I was using this DropShare app, and I think it's Mac only, maybe, I'm not sure. And they mm. and they were in beta with their own cloud serv- hosting service for all these, you know, whether you made a video or a screenshot or whatever, right? And it's, it's, it's the idea is to create shareables, shareable things. Yeah. So you do a screenshot or you make a little video, and it immediately gives you a URL you can give to anyone and they can watch it, look at it. Well, their their trial or or their beta period is over, <clears throat> so I'm trying to figure out. Okay, do I want to get this app or do I want to use like I before I used Dropler years mm-hmm. ago. Which is a real, and I don't know if I think they're maybe cross platform. I'm not sure, but um, I don't know. Theirs was a little better. I, I was actually I went to Dropbox for a brief period of time, and and just doing one thing, I made a little video using um, what's the um, screen uh, not screen share. Shit, what's it called? Um, Snagit or something? Or no, no, it's what's that's the good crud. Screenflow, Screenflow for the Mac. Okay. Yeah. I understand that. Made a video and I was like, eh, I'm just, because this is when my, my drop share expired. So I was like, I, I just made a video with screen share and I put it in my Dropbox folder and, you know, did, of course I had to put it in Dropbox folder, which takes up space on my hard drive and I have to right click and get the link. Not, you know, not a huge deal, but whatever. Sent the link to someone. But I also, 
I was like, well, I want to see what this looks like to them. So I, I pasted the link into my browser and looked at it. And when Dropbox shows you a video, it show it, they do all kinds of when you if you okay for every video you have in in a Dropbox folder, they create they go into it and like they don't just like okay here's your bits they're private bits to you we're not gonna mess with it no they if it's a video they make they immediately go in and start doing multiple different encodings of it hmm. yeah really yes and if you if you give someone a link to a video you have in your and they go to write to it in their browser. It shows them a scaled down version of this video, and they only get the the actual original quality of it if oh, they sorry, download I, it. Sorry, I, if I sound weird, I said an apple, and I don't feel like I'm getting mouth noises. That's probably <laughs> gross, but anyway, um, no. The, if you look at the browser, yeah, it's a scaled down version, and I looked at it, I'm like, this looks like crap. And so, if the person I sent this to, if they don't download it and then look at it, it's going to look horrible. I mean, it was so grainy and low res looking you could hardly see anything i'm like this is a terrible experience wow and that's what i'm just like man i guess i'll go back to dropler maybe i mean the thing is like drop it's like another 10 bucks a month and i know we talked about this like it's not a big deal but that's 120 bucks a year yeah well i mean that's that's kind of what's happening to us we're and getting already, we're getting nickel and dime i pay for dropbox <clears throat> Oh, I'm trying not to sniffle into the mic. Sorry. Of course, Wait, of course we're just com- like- we compare that against, um, you know, Salesforce charges $6,000 for one gigabyte of storage. <laughs> <laughs> but there's value add to that, Jeremy. Well, and that's paid by a company, not by me yeah. personally. That's, that's, that's the difference but, but we are in danger of kind of getting nickel and dined. I mean, everything, I mean, we all have some kind of Netflix account, some kind of Amazon account, some kind yeah, of I Dropbox mean, and, account. And, and with, that, with, with what I pay for Dropbox... I'm not even using anywhere near the storage they give me. And what for what I pay for Google apps for your business or domain or whatever, I don't use anywhere close to what they give me. For what I pay for Dropler or what I will pay if I end up sticking with it, I won't even use anywhere close to what they give me. So I've got, I'm using all these different storage services because, not because I need that much more storage. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I don't even use a tenth of what they give me. Yeah. But because Dropbox makes it crappy to share videos or whatever, I'm like, I'm having to use different little fragments of these different services because they all suck at different things. Yeah. Well, pop in the stack. Uh, what do you think about this kind of, well, I don't, I, maybe I'm just paying attention more, but I see this kind of influx of, you know, at once, once upon a time we had an influx of to-do apps and now we seem to have an influx of, yeah, you know, things. Ev- do you still use things? No, <laughs> but we have this Omni influx of, of these live docs. We have an influx of of the yeah. evolution of the to do app, right. which is this document that has checklists and spreadsheets and and you know on you know multiple people can collaborate on the same document. Yep. Uh, I don't know how useful that is. I, I see it for certain things. You know, there's certain situations where I do share a document and we're both editing the information on it. But for the most part, I think like document creation or, or trying to organize yourself that's not. It, it doesn't seem like a really good group effort type of situation. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like this where we're at right now is big companies are using. They're still they're still actually emailing a lot of Microsoft documents around. If they're really progressive, they they are using Office three sixty five, and it's all the small sm- small businesses that are using Google Docs. And you got these little guys like Quip that are just like literally nipping at the heels of like Google Docs. Mm-hmm. And of course, Salesforce bought them. It's going to you know. Give a uh, an effort at you know pushing that, right? Oh, you go. You don't. You don't want your license renewal renewal to go up fifty uh, percent. Will you? You can either. I tell you what. If you either buy uh, Wave or Quip, uh, we'll give you. We'll keep your discount. <laughs> <laughs> 
but in terms in terms of usability, I from this from the video and screenshots I saw of it, I did kind of like the way it looked. It it looked. What are we talking about? A paper. Paper. Yeah, Dropbox paper. Um, so I might give it a shot and try it out. Um, but again, it's not something I have a need for in my life. I'll look at it just to see how it works and the technology. But like I said, I tried Quip. I don't really use uh, Google Docs that way. We have some spreadsheets where we keep some kind of log or something that we're all just trying to keep track of something. Um, or we'll share you know, requirements or something in, in some Google Doc or something. But it's not something we're actively trying to collab on. Uh, so I just don't use these things. I don't have a need for them. Yeah. So it's it's tough for me to kind of justify them. But I do like looking at them and seeing the technology because it is it is it is cool. Yeah, you know, being able to put all that stuff in one one space. It's very uh, open and flexible, I guess, in that you can pretty much do and put whatever you want in there. It's right. kind of nice. Um, so our moving on. Uh, this next one came to us from Twitter from Salesforce Roger, and he wanted to know uh, Salesforce we, Roger. Salesforce okay, to use Roger. his name, I guess. Uh, he did it on Twitter, so that's yeah, public. Pretty public, right? <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> uh, uh, but he asked, uh, "Can we talk about quotes features uh, and our take on Salesforce CPQ?" Uh, he also noted that he couldn't find our email on our website, which we have remedied, uh, so that you guys know that we have a new menu option on our website called. Send us a question. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. Right. And, yeah. But if you forget, you can just jump to our website and it, it's there as well. So ask us questions, anything you want us to talk about. about quotes and CPQ, right? Which, Which CPQ, I don't really have anything to share on that. I'm not even sure I know what that it. stands for. Yeah, well, it was the, it's the figure price quote, I guess. Yeah. Right. But it's the product that they bought. That they relabeled. Uh, then they bought this. Oh, this was Steelbrick. This is Steelbrick okay. that they relabeled Salesforce CPQ. Right. Yeah. Which I never used. It's still, a st I mean, it was, oh, wait a minute. That was the one that was built on Lightning, remember? Before Lightning was Lightning, it, course, it was built yeah. on Lightning. Yeah, even though it wasn't. Yeah. But for marketing reasons, Benioff said it was. Yeah. <sighs> no shame. <laughs> but I don't know too much about it. I mean, we, we, I don't we know that we have experience in building quotes and... Well, because you and I have both, together yeah. and separately, have built so many quoting and configuration systems in the past. Yeah. But... Still, I don't know anything about Steelbrick or or what is now Salesforce CPQ. I can tell you, I've heard that um, Steelbrick is a pretty good product. Although I've I've also heard that Aptus is is more mature. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's one of those things. Probably for eighty percent of use cases and companies, CPQ is probably good. And if you can get a good deal on it, I mean, to me, it, it's one of those things that you know, if they both fit the bill, yeah, then get whichever one you can get a better deal on. I mean, Aptus kind of, I don't know. I was going to say Aptus got Sherlocked, mm -hmm. but they didn't get Sherlock near as bad as Service Max did when Salesforce decided to build their own field service. Not not buy one, not buy a partner, but build their own, even though it was being serviced by a really good partner. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm torn between the build your own or buy something because I, I like the idea of building your own because to me, it feels like it's going to be more native. It's going to be supported. It's going to follow the but, same but pattern the is, as everything I else. I know we talk about this, but with with... All that Salesforce is already involved in and how thinly they're stretched and with how they're still really struggling to make this a positive developer experience platform. They're really struggling for the actual reality to match the perception of the marketing speak. They would go out and from scratch build a field service application like, they, like they've got a bunch of extra resources lying around in 55-gallon in drums. <laughs> It, just, it makes no sense. 
It's this. That's the ultimate definition of a Sherlock. You know where that term comes from, by the way? Uh, no. It comes from the Apple ecosystem. So there was an app. Um, what was it? It was uh, crap. Was it Watson? It was Watson. That's yeah. what it was. And then Apple created their own, and it was called. They called it Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you're playing in Sonos the Sandbox, I know. And that's what we all have to remember. Yeah. All of us. You are playing, you are in an ecosystem that you don't control. You don't make the rules. And if you like it right now, just wait. They will change the rules. They will change the situation. They will Sherlock you. Something's going to change. And you're always going to have to be adjusting to what the person who owns this sandbox is doing. Because they're a big bully. That's just the definition of sandboxes. Sandboxes are always controlled by a big bully. <laughs> That's the glass half empty. You could you could say it's not that good now, but it's going to get better and be the half full guy. If you're hey, if you're currently getting rich on however it works, enjoy it because it will <laughs> you know make the money while you can bank it. All right. So so getting back to the to the question, even though we don't know anything about Salesforce CPQ. Personally, I think there is a a part when it comes to quoting and, and configuration systems where it crosses the line and you really should start looking at buying a product like Aptus or CPQ. And that's because when it gets to configuration and the rules engine that supports that and how dynamic that needs to be yeah. and all the things, building that on your own is going to be expensive because I mean, we've you, done that. Unless you've got a team of software engineers that yeah. are sitting around with that happen to be idle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you're talking about building out complex logic, decision trees, and all that. And on top of it, not just building it, but making it configurable, building it in a way so that someone can go in and change that logic. Yep. And that's the hard part. It's yep. not so much building logic that says, well, if they choose this, then show this. And if they show this, that I can code that. All right. That's fine. Hard coded. But you won't right. be able to change it. Right. When you add a new product, I'm going to have to go in and code it again. Yep. So when you start getting into that, that realm, um, you really need to start looking at, at a product. So that's when you start evaluating these other things. And I, I think that's kind of, given the context that we're given on quotes and CPQ, I think that's kind of what, what's being asked here is, you know, you know what, what's the benefit of quotes versus going to a CPQ? At least that's my impression of this question. Uh, I'm not a fan of the native quotes. I think it serves a very basic need of just being able to produce something that has multiple price points on an opportunity and to, to keep track of that. Yeah, and you can... Um, even gosh, even that, the PDF that I it generates... That, I forgot about quotes. That, that, that's a pre-CPQ thing, right? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, you could have like one... Is it, it's like one active quote, and that's the right. one that sets... That's the one that syncs back to the opportunity. Right. But it gives you a way to kind of give variations of a proposal, but it's yeah. not really a configurator. It's not anything no. that applies any kind of rich... It's just a different set of opportunity products, basically. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, which which may fit the bill if that's what you need then if that's what that does yeah and in terms of the the PDF that gets generated uh, a lot of people make do with what it can do but I, I've been asked to customize that and build something separately I, I just don't think the tools are really rich enough to really craft any kind of public facing proposal that someone wants I think it's very basic in terms of what you can put on there and lay out. So you're yeah. still you're still better off either having someone build something for you or go into what what is it, Conga or, you know, one, one of those right. merge document merge companies yep. if you really want something that's, you know, brochure like, I guess. Yeah. Yep. But you had something relating to CPQ that I thought I'd bring up. I did. Well, you you were building some kind of configurator and you were kind of struggling with Oh, that's my the technology yeah, that you wanted to use. My new Angular thing. Yeah. <clears throat> so that yeah. would segue into that. All right. Yeah. So as I was telling you today at lunch, like, you know, I have this requirement. Someone asked me to build this thing, and it, it's basically a custom 
opportunity product selector, right? So there's, I mean, in the end, they, you know, we're just going to have some products on an opportunity, but how we get there is important for a few reasons. So number one, there's all these rules that they want to apply. Mm-hmm. Like if you get this, someone at our door. Oh, <laughs> we have package delivery. <laughs> That's a first. This one's for you. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we need do we not have an on-air sign out there no we don't <laughs> we need that hold on i bet i bet you can arrange that <laughs> what are you doing huh oh you're changing what are you doing oh you had your other <laughs> john was double headsetting it again <laughs> I can't hear you for some reason, Jeremy. I don't know why I can't hear you. Well, then, then out of habit, I was putting them back on, and I realized halfway through what I was doing. Oh. <clears throat> no, it's right. just sometimes we're prepping, and I, I put some music on just while we're prepping so that I can, I don't know. I think that's Sarah's birthday present, by the way. What? What we just got delivered. Oh. <clears throat> I can't say what it is, because she actually listens to this podcast sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So yeah, so it's uh, there. There's all kinds of rules about these specific products, like, and there's attributes of the products. And if you pick a certain attribute on one product, that 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 controls the available at you know values of another attribute. And there's interactions between different products on the opportunity. So, so that's the rules enforcement aspect. It's almost mm-hmm. like a configuration engine. But the other thing is just the user experience. The um, the people that are putting in those opportunities, they, oh, how do I say this? I don't even know how they say it. But basically, they're, you know, they're not computer experts. If, if there's a way to screw it up, they'll screw it up, that type of thing. Yeah. And so we want a really easy to use interface. So there's a couple of things driving this. And I thought, well. Is it kind of like a guided kind of selling very, tool? Very something guided. Like that? It needs to be really easy to use, but also needs to enforce all these rules. Right. And so I thought, okay, I can build this using Visual Force and jQuery. Because I, I want to, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to have to deal with a lot of like, oh, well, because okay, so there was an initial iteration of this thing which was built in Flow, which mm. just, I mean, it worked, but it didn't. It was like a bad experience, and your, your, every decision you make, you've got to hit next and get a different screen. It's just, it's just not a good experience, and so that got man, no, uh, and so I thought, okay, I can build this in Visual Force with with just jQuery, right? And that, I could, I could totally could do it with that. And I could load, you know, when when the screen loads, I can I can pull in all the metadata that's needed, all the rule logic, and have mm-hmm. it in one screen, and have them build out the whole thing in one screen without having to do any other server calls or anything, right? Really fast experience and whatever. But I mean, how does with like doing a, a thing in jQuery like that? jQuery is not a data binding; it, it's a DOM manipulation tool for the most. And I know I'm that's a very reductive description. But at its core, it's a DOM manipulation tool. Right. And what the big thing here is is really data binding. Like based on certain selections you make, that in, that makes other things show up, and other things disappear, and other things the value sets change, and whatever. Right. All these different things, and I really wanted a data binding tool. Yeah, that can be pretty valuable, especially when you're talking to configurator and you want to keep track of pricing. And, you know, as you make changes to options, what does that do to your pricing? Um, is there going to be an aspect of this? And, that- and with jQuery, that's if you're doing all that, that's all up to you. That's like, that's you putting events on every element. It can get really element, messy. And then every yeah. time there's an event, you're you're recalculating everything, you know, declaratively, like, or so I should say imperatively. And it's a lot of code and it's and it's error prone. And I totally could have done that. Certainly could have done that. I've done that in the past, things like that. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's Turing complete. You can do it. But I know there's better ways. And, and um, one thing I've done before, there's a, there's a JavaScript library called Rivets. And it's a really lightweight data binding thing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it does something. And I could have done something like that. But I thought, you know, I'll, I don't know. I think I'm going to go ahead and, and do this one with, and I've been doing more Angular 2, which, by the way, it's not called Angular 2 anymore. It's just Angular. It's Angular. Yeah. Now, the original Angular, so Angular has now been, you know, posthumously <laughs> renamed <laughs> Angular 1, right? But everything after Angular 1 is just Angular. And they're going to be on a fast iteration. It'll, so it's going to be Angular 3, 4, 5, but we won't call it that. We're just going to, it's just, it's like, um, it's like the, oh, I don't know. What, it's like, I, I feel like Apple does this with things. They don't like to, they don't like to refer to the names of the, the number, the generation number of them. It's just, right. it's iPad or whatever, you know. And that's what it's going to be with Angular. It's, just, it's Angular. Well, even HTML was supposed to go that way. We call we call it HTML5, but really they they took off the five of things. They really just want to say it's HTML and, and just advance mm-hmm. the spec from really? there. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you know. And I, they say they're going to semantic versioning. Although, if if they're going to semantic versioning, I mean, every time you come out with a new major version, that's that is breaking changes. And and to not refer to the name of the major version in with the thing. Like that's brushing breaking changes under the rug. I, I I don't I don't fully understand this, but anyway. Well, it is a bit confusing too if you hear everyone talking about Angular two and you go to the Angular website and all you see is Angular. It's Angular like, Yeah, that's and you're like you're, <laughs> you're like, uh, is this Angular two or right. is this the old one? Which yeah. one am I? What's this? What's the stable version? Is that you know? It's just it it can get confusing. So I thought you know I've been doing a bunch of you know Angular Angular two things and I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it. it's pretty fast and I've I've got a lot of the boilerplate stuff I can just copy from other things like you know setting up a Salesforce connection and and kind of uh, just rest calls and that you know this I've already got that I, I could set this up pretty quickly and so that's what I did um, you know I've got it I'm, I've started building it out in Angular and and um, you know Angular's got good data binding. And so it, it solves all that stuff. I mean, within probably, I don't know, a couple of hours, I had all of these drop downs and checkboxes and then all, all of the logic that all the interconnected logic, like that was actually really easy. But just because of the, if you have a good data binding tool, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes it so that you can set up a data model that it's kind of declarative actually. And then you you kind of, and in, in, in your template, you declare your all your UI elements and how they bind to the data. And it's, it's actually really simple. Hmm. Um, and now I've hard-coded so far, the way I've kind of built this out, I've kind of building it iteratively. So I've, I've hard-coded all the actual values and their interactions, everything. And then I'm going to, once I get this built, in, which is kind of working, although it's still ugly, I've, I want to make it look better and everything. But I'm gonna, then I'm going to go back to the business people and say, okay, now what about this is important to be configurable? And so what I'll do is, Instead of all these hard-coded values and different things, I'll say, you know, based on what I find out from them that needs to be configurable and that's going to change often, I'll just turn those into like metadata calls or rest calls or whatever to get mm-hmm. the to get the values. Um, but so yeah, that, I, the, the thing I was telling you is like I, f- I feel like it's kind of overkill. It's just one screen. It's one it's one configurator thing, and it's to build a whole Angular project. So I've got you know. It's a whole Angular project. It's got its own little build system, you know. Right. It's got to be built every, you know. But I mean, this ties into the way I like to do Salesforce projects. Um, you know, you can you can check this this company. You can check their org out from GitHub, and you there's a one command that will build all their static resources, all their Angular projects, all um, the other gulp 
projects and things I've done before. It's it's one command that builds the whole thing, ultimately results in all the static resources, and then deploys that using all my other tool set, Solenopsis and all this, to to their org. So it, I mean, again, as long as it can all be automated, I mean, you know, and and part of a as long as it fits that principle of like one step checkout and, and a one step build. Right, you know, and it's automated. Then uh, I'm good with it. And if Angular's the right tool for the job, and in this case, I mean, I guess it kind of was. I mean, it's what I was familiar with. It was, it, it was. You know, the data binding is exactly what I needed for this. So, and and the boilerplate stuff that you would need for this, I was able just to copy from something else I'd done from them. You know, and I probably could turn that into some kind of reasonable, you know, Angular library thing or something, but. Um, for now, it was just you know, it was a copy paste, yeah. For for some of the basic Salesforce, because I mean, I like to set things up so that when you look at like one of my Angular components, um, what do they call it? What do they call their their component uh, class? Um, it's basically the controller, right? Angular doesn't call it controller though, right? The component class. Yeah, it's it's the it's the class that drives the component, the the, the TypeScript class that drives the component. Anyway. Oh yeah, okay. When you look at when yeah. it's when you look at what it's doing, and it it when it needs to communicate with Salesforce, it's basically calling these like I've got an API for to get Salesforce accounts. I've got an API to get contacts. I've got an API to get products, right? And so it's this nice looking API. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really can't even tell it's Salesforce, and you don't have to mess with tokens and whatever. That's all you know, kind of abstracted away nicely. And sure, but anyway, most of that's just all boilerplate stuff. So it's you know, it's that work's already been done. Might as well. So I don't know. I think I feel like so far, ultimately, like Angular was a good choice for this, even though it's just a small one screen thing. That, and that's what I struggle with. Like, is it okay to use Angular for just a one screen? And I even, I even, I'm even using, I'm even using the Angular router with this, mm-hmm. even though there's just one screen so far. Because I thought, well, first of all, I need to get some things off the off the query string, and the the Angular's router activated route thing makes it easier to do that. But also, you know, this could, it's not at all inconceivable, especially for this client, because they're growing fast and everything's mm-hmm. changing fast, that this could turn into a two or three screen thing, in which case a router might make some sense. Right. So I went ahead and just, you know, I'm using the router. Um, I, I mean, it seems like a is good... It, f- the question is, is it overkill or should, should I just have used jQuery and VisualForce, right? I, I don't think necessarily it's overkill. I, th- I think there's a lot of advantages that you got from it, and, and including the data binding and the routing. I think I think all of that speaks to, the, to its ability to scale. So... Right. And I think that's important when you're talking about it. That's important like to this, this. client because yeah. they are gr- they're small, but they're growing. They're right. they're very vibrant. They're you know it's a young company. They gr- they're growing fast. The requirements are just. I mean, their thing is they need to be able to all these projects. They've got this. They've got a bunch of different project community projects are growing fast, and it's 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 really about growing fast business agility. I mean, you know, you mm-hmm. hear that that term you know used and abused business agility, but that I mean they're really a company. They need that. Right. And, you know, if we can use a tool that gets them some agility that, that doesn't require a big upfront investment, and, and like I said, I mean, this was not a big upfront investment. I've, I, mean, I mean, I'm the one building it, so I've already got, I've already got Angular skills and experience. Mm-hmm. I've, all the boilerplate crap has already been done. Um, so it's I, think it's, I think it's good for them. But I don't know. I mean, the thing is, time will tell. We don't... Right. We make decisions. What you know, if you're someone who is making decisions on how apps are built, or you're a you're a system app architect, whatever, you know, you make the decisions on technology based on the information you have available to you at the time. Now, when you look back, 
Will all those decisions be the right ones? Absolutely not. But based on the information you had at the time, they were the best decision you could make. Yeah. And you have to be okay with that. So I want to play devil's advocate a little bit here. And and I struggle with this when I think about doing stuff like that. When I think about bringing in a tool like Angular or something into the Salesforce world, one of my thought processes is, is these guys bought Salesforce, they bought this development platform, and here I am not building it on Salesforce. Well, you, you're interacting with the API and the data, the underlying data, but I'm not using Apex, I'm not using Visual Force, except maybe as a container. Right. You know, and when and when I'm long gone and they bring someone else to come in and, and update this, they're going to go, this isn't Salesforce, this is Angular, I don't know how to do this. Uh, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, oh, I'm well, not j- sure just, I'm following just, that. Just in terms of, of the, the decision-making process, you know. I mean, do, do I have to worry about if some person who doesn't have much skills is trying to... No, I, I think it's more so that, that uh, you know, a company, they, they get Salesforce, they expect things to be built in Salesforce, they expect that when they hire someone who knows Salesforce, they're going to be able to come in and modify this. Uh, maybe because you're not available or well, something. That's a, bad, that's a bad assumption. I'm just saying, I mean... That's not my fault. I can't, I can't control your bad assumptions. My bad assumptions? You can't control anyone's <laughs> bad assumptions. Well, it, it is something that needs to be understood. It needs to be understood that, hey, we can do this. Here, here's the here's a solution that I think will fit well with you. It'll scale well. It'll perform really yeah. well. And it gives you these advantages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the cons is that, you know, it's built in this this more client-side environment. It's not built using the standard Salesforce, Visual Force uh, paradigm. No, we're, well, we're building things using the, the most appropriate technology. But are you ever concerned that that's going to be an issue, that somehow someone's going to come back and say, hey, you, we got someone to bring this, to build this, and, and they said they can't do it because it's not built in Salesforce? Well, yeah, that, that's making the assumption that the only technology this company ever has is Salesforce. That, that's a stupid. Well, I'm just it's ridiculous. It, does it ever Does it ever occur? No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that wrong. No, so, okay, I feel like I'm attacking, so, but I'm okay, just saying. So, so if, if, if a company has you know, something that involves technology A and B, and they hire someone only who knows technology A, is it my fault they don't know A and B? No, it's not my fault. No, I'm not saying it's your I, fault. I can't future-proof them against And I, I, I guess maybe that's, that's, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, it, I don't know. It's, it's just one thing I struggle with. When I think about solutions, I, I worry that, you know, okay, I built this. I use these technologies. It works great. I know how to build in this. Uh, but what if they bring someone I mean, in can, and they don't know I how to do it? I can tell you, even the, even the things I've built that are, that are restricted to Salesforce technologies, half of these people that are, and it, it involves like the whole world now and all their these massive body shop consulting companies, they wouldn't be able to work on the Salesforce stuff I did. They, they'd immediately get in and screw it up. Am I, is, and is that my responsibility? No. Okay. Well, I mean, I, again, I can't be responsible for every future decision people make when they don't know what they're doing. I, I guess I agree. I, I, it's, and I, I am being serious of this when I say, I, even though I was playing devil's advocate no, I, with the, I question, the question, but I, I am being serious about the fact that, you know, I do struggle with, you know, should I, should I do this much customization? Should I do this much custom coding? I don't know who they're going to hire three years from now. That's true. I don't even know if they'll be using Salesforce three years from now. <laughs> right. You see what I'm saying? Like, so worry about the now, worry about the best tool for now, make the best decision I mean, you can is part what you're of it. saying. I mean, but I was, I mean, I worry about the now and the future. That's why when I, when I do do things, I, I make sure that it's, it's follow it's following good principles. Like it is a I mean, I always I always one important rule is like you should be able to check out from version control and with one command build the whole system, right? I follow that rule. That's a great rule to follow. Any you know, any system where you have to check it out and do a million things in order to build it, that's a fail. It should be a checkout and one step to build. 
Well, and I, and I make sure I do that right. You know, I make sure that everything's got readmes, and it's it's it it is friendly to anyone who you know has who is competent could get in there and and take over and do something with it. Yeah. But I'm but but within those bounds, I'm going to use the best technologies. I the, I'm gonna, I'm going to use the right technologies, at least in my opinion, based on what I know at the time. I mean, this company could be out of business in six months, so I'm not going to worry about three years from now. You know, I'm not going to worry about what makes sense. I guess that's fair. And there's a there's it's a it's a balance of what makes sense for now and and future proofing. Yeah. So. Uh... <laughs> Will this solution work in uh, Lightning? In Lightning? Yeah, yeah. it'll run in Lightning. It, it's not Lightning, mm-hmm. but it will, yeah. Well, there, there's your scalability right there. I guess. <laughs> um, but I can't, Of course, it, you're, using you know, ang- you're using Angular. I think you might have to put it in a container to put it in Lightning, but it'll work. Well, that's another question I've got. So the Angular stuff I've done with Salesforce, like some of it has been... You basically just leave Salesforce, although it's running from a static resource, mm-hmm. but it has to leave Salesforce. And that's because, I mean, Angular, I think in particular, doesn't like being implemented as just a part of a page. As a container? Unless it's an iframe, right? I mean... Well, I think the, that's but, the punt with Lightning, the Lightning container tag. Yeah. I think it's just an iframe, basically. Yeah, Um you know, and, and the other problem is like, for example, you know, one of my crutches is Bootstrap. I mean, I, I know how to use Bootstrap. I know how to, mm-hmm. and I, I use its grid system. I use its layout system. You know, I use some of the basic styles or whatever. And if I bring that into a Visual Force page, for example, and I've got the Salesforce header and sidebar, well, that's going to, the problem is, is number one, I'd like my, just the Bootstrap CSS. It, it's, it infects the rest of Salesforce. Right. But also... All Salesforce's crappy styles infect my Angular app. Yep. And so I don't want that. So I have two choices. One, I can leave Salesforce altogether and make it a... I can... I think what I've done in the past is a Visual Force page where you don't... You don't show any of the, the headers or sidebars. So you basically, right. you're just you're in your own thing and you don't have any of the standard style sheets, right? So it's... It's, it's just a page. It's a vanilla canvas, right? Yeah. So, you know, bootstrap, foundation, whatever, you know, your own custom stuff, whatever you want to use. And that's a good solution, except for it feels like you're leaving Salesforce, which may be fine for your situation, but it also may not be fine. Like, you may not want it to feel like you're leaving Salesforce. Right. Now, in this particular situation, I think I want it to not feel like you're leaving Salesforce. I think I want I think I think want the Salesforce header there, and I want to kind of feel like you're still kind of in the opportunity somewhat. And so now my question is, okay, do I just have this render as um, not even an iframe, just you know, Visual Force just kind of insert your stuff into the DOM? In which case... Again, my any of my styles are going to infect Salesforce, and all Salesforce's styles are going to infect my Angular app. Or do I do it as an iframe, mm-hmm. which solves that? But now I've got the problem of does it feel like it's an iframe? Because <laughs> that can be gross too. Now there's some JavaScript you can use on the kind of the the parent side that constantly is okay. There's there's the first problem of you got to you need to initialize the iframe to take up the full width of the space available to it right? right but then if you resize the browser there's there's not an automatic resizing of your iframe there's a little bit of javascript that's required to do that right which is not a big deal um i'm and i'm probably going to go down that route i think of keeping this in an iframe 
and then using some JavaScript to, to handle resizes. Yeah, which I've done. And it's it's probably important to note at this point that doing so means that you have to be on the same domain because cross-domain cross won't, won't allow that. Won't allow what? Well, if you want to size your content or your frame to your content so that you don't get an extra scroll bar, it has to be able to reach out into that iframe, and it can only do that if it's the same domain. What about the parent that's constantly resizing... Well, you could do that, but that's kind of inefficient as well. Well, uh, I guess if you're using timeouts, it's probably not as bad. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I think that's what I've done in the past. I've not had a problem. Well, see, what I do usually do is, is I'll have a Visual Force page. Right. And then the iframe is also in a page. And because they're both on the same domain, I can reach out and say, hey, the parent iframe resize to my content, or I grab what the size of my content is and tell it to resize to that. See, I don't Height-wise. Now, width-wise is easy. That's 100%. Yeah. Uh, Height-wise is the issue. My, the content size of this Angular app is, is not the important thing. The important thing is I would like the parent to resize the iframe to always take up like the most room it's got available to it. Well, in, in the case of Visual Force and in the case of Salesforce, if you just have the header, the body, I think, is uh, min width of 100 picks. It's, that's, that's all it is. That's what it'll be. So you have to no, be much it. bigger than that. There's going to be much more room available. You're talking about typically, you know, 1,000 pixels, whatever's available in that whole content area. Width or height? Both. And particularly height is what you've got to constantly, you've got to handle uh, resizes for. Yeah, but that still runs into the danger if you're if the content within your iframe is bigger than the height it's of your window. It's not going to be. It's not going to be. Okay. Yeah, I don't well, have that in that problem. in that situation. You'll end up with two scroll yeah. bars. No, I don't. I don't have that problem. It'll definitely the the parent window will be the driving factor. The okay. the actual i the the this app itself that's within the iframe is it can run on a very it could run on a mobile phone basically. That's how the con the it doesn't you know it doesn't need a lot of width or height. Right. I just don't want double scroll bars. I want it to feel yeah. native. And right? that, that, that's yeah. always kind of been the issue with me in iframing. It's just that it, it doesn't automatically resize to the yeah. content within it. And yeah. I wish there was a some kind of attribute or something that says, hey, you know, yeah. do me a solid here. I don't want scroll bars. Right. I don't want extra scroll bars. So anyway, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, do you have this the Chris Rock thing on your list? Do you want to talk about that? I do. I just yeah, had the funny. link to it. I I wish I could find some video of what he said, but apparently this is a routine that he's practicing I'm for his sure tour. Salesforce made sure that no video of that got out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I read too. That he's he's got some new material, right? He wanted to practice, and you know, a lot of these people don't realize this. I think, uh, but comedians, bands, whatever they, yeah, they get these corporate gigs, which you mm-hmm. know they don't pay probably as well, but it's a great opportunity to want number one to make some money on your off days. Yeah, but also to try out new material and things, and that's what you know. That's what I, apparently that's what Chris Rock was doing. He got new new material, and and uh, Salesforce brought him in. What what was this event? Um, do you remember? Did you read? It was some kind of just internal employee oh, no. event. It was no. It was there. It was the new the 2017 kick, sales kickoff. It was a big sales. You know, they well, they bring all their salespeople in and they have a big party, and it's a big kickoff for the new, you know for the new year. But it was it was employee specific. It, it wasn't. wasn't yeah, it wasn't internal. like a public event. No, no, it was internal. Yeah. But it was a big. It was a big event though. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> so I, there was a, uh, you know, our friend Barb Darrow uh, yeah. in Fortune, she had an article, and she says, you know, he took, Chris Rock took the stage, uh, and he, she said, for the most part, the set which, which capped the day's events was a hit, but some of his material, which referenced his own recent divorce, and women marrying wealthy men rubbed some in the room the wrong way, and most, most notably, Stephanie Buscemi, which uh, we've talked about her before, I don't remember what the context was. I'm sure in a very uh, 
informational and respectful way. Uh, cause that's how we roll. And she's there. What, uh, EVP of products and solutions, marketing, whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, but she, you know, stood up and was like, you know, give me the mic. And she talked down or she, I don't, I don't know if that was, she got up and kind of ranted about how offended she was or something. <laughs> That, that, that struck me as an odd and very uncomfortable situation to be a part of, I think. Well, we have a cognitive dissonance here. Like, on the one hand, all these employees of Salesforce have been, I mean, they work for the, literally the most politically correct company probably there is in the world. Okay. And, and on the other hand, Mr. Mr. King of San Francisco himself has brought in a politically incorrect comic. Well, what do you expect to happen? Well, that, that's just comedy in general. I mean, comedy has always kind of been about pushing pushing buttons and and just saying yeah, controversial exactly. things, all in the context of comedy. Uh, well, because and comedy is the excuse, right? As long as it's because art or because comedy, it's okay to like say racist stuff or sexist stuff or whatever, right? That that's just a thing. <laughs> I guess it's and, just and a they thing. don't like to be questioned on it because they are artists. Well, they, they just like um, you know, the, like rap music, which whatever may get negative in certain areas. Like it's it that's art, and that's their that's their story. Is that hey, this is art. You can't question this or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. this is I think one of those things. But anyway, uh, you know, Barb says that this was a st- uh, I like this a sticky wicket, a sticky I gotta, wicket. I gotta, I gotta add that to my lexicon. Well, I find it interesting that bef- when when she's describing the situation, she talks about how Benioff introduced him and said, "Hey, this th- th- we're inviting Chris Rock up here, and and you know some of the stuff he says might be controversial. and might want to leave now if, if you're really sensitive to that kind of stuff." Which is odd for me to me that so, he would actually go up there and do it. Which tells me he heard this he, before and he knew what the content was. Yes, he was. Yeah, but I, but, uh, I guess Stephanie didn't leave. She was like, oh, "I can handle this," <laughs> and then I turns mean, out she couldn't. I don't know. Is that one of the things like, hey, you were warned. Like, how are you now surprised? Well, I don't know. I, I guess I guess part of it is, do I leave because I'm, do I, do I, it's it's almost like a public shaming, isn't it? To go, go up there and say, hey, if you're easily offended, get out because we're about to do some fun stuff. And then to walk out with your head and everyone go on. Ooh, I guess that's she's, true. She's that, that's like saying, hey, we're going to get up here and so, say some sports jokes. So all you women who don't know about sports, you should probably leave the room. Like, yeah. You know, that's so not that, cool, that, that just seemed really odd for him to, to actually do that, to give. It's a double-edged sword to say, hey, I'm warning you, this is going to get kind of racy. If you can't handle it, leave. If, yeah. That's that double-edged sword. If, if you're, you're trying to, you're trying you're to trigger warn, yeah. you're trying to trigger warn at the yeah. same time you're saying, we're going to public, sh- you're, you might get some public <sighs> shame walking out that door by yourself. But you know, they say they want trigger warnings. Well, they got a trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, but I, I don't really know what he no said or what what could have been said. So may, maybe he did cross the line. Maybe some of the things he said just really crossed the line, and she, you know, she really had to speak up at that point. And I don't know if you know Barb writes as if she was there. Maybe she was, but she says that you know Chris got back up there and said, "Sorry, I I'm out," and he left the stage as the audience sat in an awkward silence for what seemed like a long time, and then Benioff stood up to wish everyone a good night. <laughs> That's. Yeah. Oh boy, that sounds really awkward. <laughs> well, uh, you know, com- comedians—they—they, they, I, I, I follow a lot of comedians. They're all—they're all podcasters now. <laughs> so in between, Every, everyone's a podcaster. Uh, in between stand-up, they're all podcasters yeah. now. So you, you can actually get some pretty candid discu- or candid thought processes from them in terms of their comedy and how they approach it, and how politically correctness kind of ruins a lot of their comedy because they they can't go out and say things that they normally would say. Go back to go watch some old uh, Eddie Murphy stuff. And, and tell me you don't kind of like go, ooh, I Eddie, can't believe I can't believe what you have said you that. What have you done for me lately? 
<laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, we, we forget these things. It's always kind of been controversial. They always, they always push the buttons. They always say those things. <laughs> I can remember watching Eddie Murphy, renting Eddie Murphy VHSs when I was, I would have been in third grade, maybe? So I was like eight. Um, wow. It wasn't Raw. It was way before Raw. Delirious, I think. Do you remember Delirious? No. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I only got into so stuff later because I, I, I didn't have access to that stuff. Probably about as inappropriate as me watching a bachelor party when I was like eight or nine years old. Did you ever watch that? <laughs> no. Oh, God. It's a great movie. No. Uh, I, uh, my my parents sheltered me quite a bit yeah. when I was younger, wow. so I didn't I didn't see a lot of that stuff until I was older and just got kind of saw it. Yeah. So, yeah. I saw a thing on, uh, I don't know what I just clicked here. I saw a thing on um, these, uh, you know, tech CEOs and their security detail because we've talked about this before how... Benioff you know, has a security Benioff, he's like this giant who's like, okay, this, if, if there's one person who doesn't need security deal, it, detail, it's him, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, if I ran up to him to, you know, give him well, a bear hug. Well, first of all, at, first of all, if I, no, if I ran up to him to give him a bear hug and he, you know, he didn't even know it was coming, all he had to do is just like stick his hand out and I would just like bounce off of him and like fall <laughs> to the ground, you know? <laughs> well, the other thing is, is who is he getting protected from? Because, I mean, all, all I see is everyone at Dreamforce wanting to, Find Dude, Benioff this, and give him a bear hug. This MVP and admin crowd would take a million bullets for him. You'd, you'd, if someone pulled out a gun, you'd see all these MVPs jumping in front of him. <laughs> anyway, um, no, I saw some, somebody published some numbers. Uh, where was this? This was in the register, maybe? I don't know. I'll post a link. Uh, but they're talking about, you know, the, the cost of the security details for these big tech CEOs. And uh, the, the, or, no, the cost of a permanent four-man security details around a million dollars a year. Um, and so I thought, okay, and for 2016, the median cost for a top CEO was $126,000 a year. $126,000. Top CEO. So let me ask you, this is, I'm going to turn this into an Ask John. Oh, boy. What was Benioff's, what are Benioff's annual security detail fees? Uh, 250000 $250,000? Yeah. 1.5 million. Holy crap. Yep. How many people? I don't know. I thought he just had like one big That's guy. It's gotta be like half a dozen. Really? I thought he just had like one big guy that bounced. Um, guess what Tim Cook's is? By the way, a company that has multiple times more revenue and infinitely more profit and, and international <laughs> interests, right? Uh, I'll say what are Tim Cook's? I'll say half of Cook's? what Benioff is charging. Less or than is paying. 220 grand. See, I would have been I would have been closer yeah, to right. I know. I know. Wow. But the top, the top was, and I think this is just because they have so much money just to throw away. Mark Zuckerberg, $4 million. Bezos, 1.6. So Bezos is right there with Benioff. Uh, Ellison, 1.5 right there. But we, we've, I think we've talked about this Mark before. Mark Hurd, Oracle, 176000 But the company pays for this. The company is putting that, that, oh, yeah. that value right. on, on uh, oh, I almost said Benioff's no, head, but it's not the company, on John, Benioff. It's the stakeholders that are paying for this. Well, yeah, the stakeholders. <laughs> Well, how much is that? That that kind of still goes back to the point we've made, or I, I've made plenty of times, is that you know Benioff is Salesforce. Salesforce is Benioff. If he were to leave, where would where what would happen to Salesforce? I mean, there's there's people who yeah. can take on the uh, business and have right. They, they have the savvy, but are they going to be able to sell the Salesforce story the way he yeah. can? Well, I mean, Apple was Steve Jobs, right? It really was, and and you know, I think the jury's still out. We don't know if. I mean, did did. Apple hit their, you know, hit their peak with Steve Jobs. It's, I think we don't know yet. Well, it's, it's, I would, uh, anecdotally, I would say in terms of innovation, probably because they haven't released anything. Uh, Watch, right? Watch is Yeah, new. but that was, that was still under development yeah. under, uh, under we don't know. Jobs. 
It wasn't something brand new. Well, Apple's just this week, Apple's hot stock hit record highs. So that's hey, at least at least the you know, we're keeping the ship running in the right direction here, right? Yeah. Either way. <clears throat> Do you use Ghostery? Yes. Okay. So I just got bought by something that I had never heard of and I use Ghostery too, although I don't really I don't I don't have like a highly configured Ghostery. Yeah, I don't really think about it. I just know it's on. But you know, I'm, I remember before I used Ghostery, I used, you know, there's there was this AdBlock and there was AdBlock Plus, which are completely different companies, different products. And I can't remember one of them was kind of more scammy than the other. And that was a big deal. And then yeah. then learned about Ghostery. So I switched to Ghostery and now they just got bought for someone. And I was hoping that you would be able to give me the lowdown on like how this affects <laughs> me. Like, should I care about, is this a good thing? Do I need to care about this? Do I keep using Ghostery or is this a bad company? I don't, I don't know. know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't either. I wish I did. Um, I have a little anecdote here, a little, little thing. It was a process builder thing. So somebody, uh, boy, really, really, uh, but, you know, ill, ill-guided deci- uh, decision reached out to me to help uh, with process builder. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll try. But they were using a, like an isnol function to mm-hmm. evaluate. I guess you can use formulas and things in Process Builder mm-hmm. as some kind of criteria or whatever. And it just like wasn't behaving the way you think it would. This is null. And, and so I just kind of Googled it. And sure enough... Um, I bet you had to use this blank or something like that, right? Yeah. So yeah. The, the general advice is, you know, use is blank, which <sighs> really... I mean... Are we dumbing things down so much that we can't expect people to know what null means? Get use blank because morons don't know what null means. Yeah, but blank. Blank. What is it? I don't even know what blank means. Blank extends. Does blank mean an okay, I know what null means. And I know what an empty string means. Mm-hmm. But I do not know what blank means. Is that null? Is that an empty string? Which is not null. What is blank? Well, blank is supposed to blank, blank is supposed blank to offer. Blank is a less precise word than null is. Why are we going backwards? Well, null tends to get overloaded. Null null tends to mean null or 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 empty string, but that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be null. A null never means an instance of a string that happens to be empty. Right. Null but, never means that. But blank is supposed to mean that. Blank is supposed to test for null or empty string. And so that's why I I use blank more so well, than I use null because null is supposed to be specific so, to finding nulls. And you never know if you're evaluating a string whether it's null or just empty. Irregardless, John, I will use that word incorrectly, the non-word. The issue here was that this person was using is null, and it was not, we were not getting the behavior we would expect. Like, if it was null, it was returning, is null was returning false. We're like, well, this is really weird. And so I Googled it, and I, and I ended up on the success community, and one the product, product manager was like, yeah. We've deprecated is null. And on top of that, it probably doesn't work. And mm. in, and sure enough, it doesn't work. It returns, because is null, it, it returns a Boolean. It's right. either true or false. And it's returning the opposite of what it should have. It was, it was not returning the right value. Completely broken. But here's, here's, what I, here's what I understand. It's still there, available for use in Process Builder. With no note of a deprecation, and it's not. There's nothing in that in there that indicates that like this is this is broken and don't use it. It's deprecated. Why is that? I don't know. I don't either. I mean, I just 
And if it's going to be there, then fix it and make it work. All this is one of those things where it's a bug and everyone has coded around that bug and you can't fix it now. You can't fix it. Yeah, how are you going to remove it? Because that would break everyone's processes. Or sorry, they're process builders. Well, that, that's a or that, that's a sticky wicket. It, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so the show title. There's just no question about it, right? <laughs> anyway, no, I don't know. I mean, again, I, th- I think Process Builder is, you know, it is what it is. It's cool. It's getting better. It'll always get better. It's I know. I always I feel like this is my disclaimer because we have we have a lot of uh, admin friends that get get irritated at me. Yeah. Um, no, it's good. I mean, it's, do, it's good for one. You tend to press their buttons. It's a tool, right? But we should remember it's a tool. Just like anything that you or I or anyone else uses is a tool, and it's good for some things. It's good in certain situations. It's not good for other things. And just always remembering that, like, if that's your only tool, you know, if your only tool is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Yeah. And the truth is, is not everything's a nail. And sometimes we need to use a different tool. And that's okay. That's my thing with Process Builder. Yeah, but sometimes you don't have the uh, resources to to use a different tool. <laughs> well, you know what? Or and, they can bring that tool to the right. table. Yeah, and if you need a, if you need a, you know, if you need a, if you if you have a screw and you need a screwdriver to screw it in, but all you've got is a hammer, I guess try to jam that screw in with a hammer. See what, see how it works. It may work, but it may be a really bad idea. You may destroy what you're trying to fix. You know, just be honest about it. You know, be open about it. But if it works, it works, right? If it works. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying. If it works, it works. I don't, of course, know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, well, just like our conversation earlier, it's like there's there's what's right for, I mean, will it work for right now? Okay, that's one question. But how does this scale with us? What does it look like a year from now or six months from now? You know, is that what we want to build on? And, and I don't, you know, again, I mean, this, these are not rhetorical questions. These are sincere questions. Yeah. I can't answer that for you. Only you in your situation can answer that. True. So along that lines of if it works, it you know let it be. <laughs> Is that what we're saying? Let if it, it works, let it be. Uh, <laughs> I have I have two things that I marked as ask Jeremy's. One of them is going to be: uh, Do you ever look at code that uh, works? It's fine technically, but it's not the way you would have done it. Do you ever feel like going in there and rewriting it and have you? Even though it's not in, within your scope of, of work? Okay, so there's the principle of leave things better than what you found them. And I try to follow that principle. Mm-hmm. Okay, If I'm going to work on something, and I let's say I check out a branch, and I'm on a feature branch, I'm like, okay, I'm going to implement this feature. And I and as a part of this feature, I've got to, got to use a, a repository class. And I know it's not a repository class, and it's like, I don't know, it's formatted crappily, or it's some, got something that, oh, that's that's actually bug-prone. Like, do I fix it while I'm in there? Yeah. Because I do like to leave, I like that principle. I'd like to leave everything better than the way I found it. That's one principle. Another principle is, on any given commit, you should only be fixing or doing one thing. If you find a problem with that repository class, okay, that's fine. Make a note of it. Commit your feature. And then what you need to do is create an issue or a ticket or whatever for that problem you found. Or at minimum, if you don't create a ticket for it, at least fix it on a separate commit. Mm-hmm. Because you know each commit should be really kind of concise, at least, or have a focus to it. It reminds me of, and I don't know hardly anything about hunting, 
But I can remember being like, I don't know, eight or 10 years old. I got family in Kansas and we were up there for something. And I was out with my uncle and my cousin and my dad. And I don't think I had a gun. I think I had a BB gun or something. But they were, they all had shotguns <laughs> or whatever. I don't remember what they had rivals or something. And we were going out hunting for some, I think it was some kind of birds, so probably shotguns. Um, and there was, I think it was a rabbit or something. And my cousin was like, yeah, take out this rabbit. And my uncle got really pissed because we weren't hunting rabbits. We were hunting, I think it was quail or whatever it was. Yeah. And you go, you you have a mission and you stick to that. You don't muddy it with other crap. Right. And I got to assume, I mean, I don't even, I couldn't, I couldn't articulate the principle behind that from the hunting perspective, but it's got to be similar. Well, it is. It, it can be. Because, I mean, imagine the commit message. Well, I implemented this feature, but also fix this thing and blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't know. You know, like, those should be separate commits. Well, not only that, I mean, but if, the problem if you is, mess with if it. If you don't fix it while you are doing it right there, the question is, is are you going to come back and fix it? And that's... Well, the other question is, do you start to own that block of code at that point? No. I reject this notion of ownership. And you know what? I will have to say, I've noticed, I meant to tell you this. You say that a lot. I do. My code, my class, my controller, my, 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 my. And <laughs> like, I feel like that's not the attitude you should have. I, I, I don't want to have because a different first attitude. Of all, first of all, you don't own any of that stuff. That's like owned by your clients, right? You don't own those. Unless you're talking about a project that you own. But Look, here, there's, like, there's like this huge distinction between what's mine and what's not mine. And, I, and again, I, sometimes I fall into that. Like there's clearly stuff that I've written and there's clearly stuff that someone else did. Mm-hmm. But in general, like when I'm in there... We're adding a new feature or whatever. Like, I don't, I shouldn't anyway think of it as, well, that thing's mine, but that thing's not mine. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to mess with that. I don't do that. Like if I'm in there and I'm, let's say I'm, let's say I'm adding a feature, something I did, but I've also got to, I, it's, I've got to use some class that someone else did. I'll, I'll fix that other class if it's broken while I'm in there. And, I mean, it's like, you know, you got a patient on the operating table and you go in and you're going to replace the spleen, but you see that they've got, um, I don't know, something else wrong. Like, you already got them open. Like, shouldn't you fix it while you're in there? Do <laughs> you even replace spleens? So, so actually, I don't even know if you replace spleens or not. <laughs> yeah. You're actually getting into the, the crux of, of my argument here in that, yeah, I do I do feel like a sense of ownership for, for a certain block of code because I can control the way that was written. I can control the input output of that and how it works. Well, see, I like to say when teams, when situations, at least anywhere where I've got any influence, we are all empowered to fix things, to improve the system, the state of the system. We are all empowered. So so maybe this if is you a, find something I did wrong or this just something that can be improved and, and I happen to write it, I don't care who wrote it. You are allowed and empowered to fix that and improve it. And I think that gets back to the team dynamic situation. I, 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 the way I see these things play out and oftentimes, and even in this project that I'm starting, it feels like we've all gotten these assigned blocks of code, the, these, these silos that we, the, of things that we need, functionality that we need to create. And yeah, we're all building on the same system, but this guy's doing this piece and I'm doing this piece. And, and what I'm finding is I'm looking at code and I know I have to put my code in with their code, but I don't like the way they did it. It technically works. I can think of a scenario where it could break and I want to fix that. But then I'm like, okay, now I'm taking ownership of this. I ha- The unit testing, no. so I have I to take ownership well, of. And, and by I ownership, I, I mean, mean I have to fix it like, and I have to make sure it, it so works. Got, if you break it, you've got to fix it. Right. But, yeah. No, I... There's also the economics of the situation. I have a budget of hours to do this one piece. And if I start tangenting off and building all this and working on this other stuff because I don't like the way it looks or I don't like the way it works, I'm eating away at my budget. Yeah, and that, that's just, I think that's a, a, a trade-off thing, a decision you've got to make. Like, 
if you if you're on a really short timeline or some kind of monetary budget or something, well, when aren't you? Um, when aren't you on some kind of budget? When aren't you you know beholden to to getting something done within a certain time? Me, frame? quite often. I mean, I've got like clients that I've been working for for several years, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm still on a. I mean, I'm I'm on a budget. Like I've been given a feature to implement, and I need to get it done in you know four, eight, twenty, forty hours, whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. But I'm always while I'm in there improving things. That's just the way I work. I mean. If I guess I don't know. I guess if I was on some like emergency life or death thing, I would just stay laser focused on this thing. But I mean, the, I don't know. I, I just feel like I end up with a much better system because I'm always willing to be improving all these different aspects of it while I'm in doing stuff. You get us that principle of leave it better than the way you found it. All right. So so along those lines to the part. No, two, if, that, if that if that doubles my budget, am I going to do that? No. Or you know, if, or if the client, if I don't. If it's something that's non um, non trivial in terms of time or budget, am I going to do that without getting the client's approval or whatever? No. I mean, if it's non trivial, I'll just I'll, and if it's something I feel needs attention, I'll create an issue for it, and then mm-hmm. the, the client can, when they're grooming the backlog, can decide how important that is. Yeah, and we'll talk about it too. It's not like, you know, especially if it's a, some technical thing, like, well, this is not very testable. Well, what does that mean? I mean, if the client's not a software engineer, like, well, what the hell does that even mean? Like, and I'll help them understand what that means to them in terms of value and time and money and everything. And then they can they can organize it however they want in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I but mean yeah, that, just that's little fair. things. Like I mean I'll yeah, I'll fix formatting and I'll I'll rename something if it if it's got a crappy name. If if the name because you could I mean everyone runs into this. Like you name a method something and by the time you're done with it, you're like, well that's that method doesn't really do what I thought it was originally going to do. And so it should be renamed. Well we're not we're not always perfect about renaming it then like we just yeah. go on we commit it we're done we got to move on to the next thing well there's there's dependencies then, you know, let's, there's people let's, let's people like have two it months in... later you're in there and you see the same method you wrote two months two months before you're like god i never renamed that method doesn't really do what it says it does i need to rename that and you just pop in there that takes you five seconds there may be a couple of references where it's used and because you use a limited cloud you can see where what's used what's using it you you need to fix that and you're boom it took you 30 seconds and you've just improved the system yeah I guess I guess I'm far more territorial than than anything. To be honest, I like I've I've mentioned it before. I notice when people touch my code. You I notice I notice when they taint change my code, and I get pissed. Like a dog, don't piss on my bush. <laughs> <laughs> but I do because I code things a certain way, and there's a method to my madness, and it's not always perfect. But when I see someone that doesn't care, doesn't have the and by care, I mean, I care about the spacing. I care about how things are named. I care about how variables are used and what they're named. And I care about the indentation. Yeah, I care about yeah. things being clear and yeah. readable and easy to understand. And when someone just kind of goes in there and they don't give a crap, they have spacing everywhere. Tabs are like, you know, all over the place and they're fine. It or works. Or like the lines go out to like 400 columns wide. Yeah. But to them, it works. <laughs> it's like, you know, you have a character turn key on your keyboard. You can, you can hit that and it wraps <laughs> it around. <laughs> yeah. So, so then, then I start to think, okay, well, well how do I fix this? Because this is going to keep happening. Do I start mentoring people? Do I start, in, you know, trying to teach people, you know, what I've learned and how I should do this? Is that my job? You know, I, I just, I, I struggle with it all the time. It is a struggle. Mm-hmm. And especially in a situation like you're talking about where there, there may be a lot of other people on, on, they're not on your team. They're not people you talk to. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be one of those things where you are just like, you're just pissing all over everyone's bushes. Like, you're just like, obviously leaving the John fingerprint all over everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, no. I mean, that's not very productive. You're just going to piss people off. Yeah. And that doesn't help. That doesn't help the client at right. that point. Um, so, yeah, no, there's there's some judgment there. I mean, 
I think it's a case by case. I, I can't tell you on that. You know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't go in there and just like just change everyone's. Like for example, if 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 you work on a team and you guys use spaces and this other team that the client hired they use tabs, mm-hmm. don't go in there and change all their things to spaces. That's not that doesn't help anyone. Oh, I just do uh, Option Command L. <laughs> you change, you reformat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just going to piss everyone off, and that doesn't help. I'm talking about things that, you know, it should be a, an honest test. Like, is this helping the project? Well, it, uh, it, that's tough because sometimes I feel like it would. Sometimes I feel like it would benefit. Sometimes I see things that I'm like, okay, yeah, you brought that into this environment, but it's not the right well, thing. Well, one for thing this I will always do, because, and I don't know why people don't care about this, I really care about fitting everything in, uh, like, you know, some number of columns. Now, whether it's 80 or 100 or 120, okay, I'll everyone can make a decision. But when you've got people that, that go out four or 500 columns out, I will, all day long, I will insert character turns into their code, and I mm. will commit those. I may not convert their tabs to spaces, but I will fix, I will make it so you don't have to scroll horizontally to try to read code, because that's a deal breaker. Scrolling horizontally is a deal breaker. That's fair enough. But so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a judgment call. You don't want to be the guy that uh, just is like, you know, the bull in the china shop. So do you think it speaks to the kind of team dynamic that's set up that, you know, there isn't someone who's kind of the director, the the guy that does the keyframing, that, you know, the guy that kind of says, this is the tone that we're trying to set? The DP? The DP? Director of photography? Yeah. Cinematographer? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I mean, this gets into... Mm, people who are working as software engineers who <laughs> maybe should find a different career. I, well, I, I do run across that. I do run across I people do. who are at different levels of their career. You know, some are young and they're, you know, they don't know all the things, but they're at least trying. And then you have some that are older that just like, I don't care. It works. Screw it. Yeah. And then you have me who's just neurotic. I just, I just, I nitpick. I mean, some people don't care that their their screen is covered with fingerprints and dust and smooge and j- you know stuff. And exactly, I mean, how 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 are you going to convince that person to care about that? They don't care, John. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want more people to care. I know do too. <laughs> but you can you just you cannot. You can leave them to water, but you can't make them drink. Yeah. Uh. All right, so I, I, have right. An, I have another Ask Jeremy. Okay. Uh, so I ran across this code, and th- this is more about performance versus uh, scalability. Is it scalability? I guess it's scalability. Performance versus scalability. So I ran across this piece of code, and what it does is it, it looks at some information from one object, and based on if a certain setting is set, let's we'll say the flag is true, then it'll go and update another object, a parent object. Okay. Um, However, it doesn't check to see whether or not that parent object needs to be changed. So any change that happens and that state is true, it's going to update that parent object. Now, it works. There's, there's, when, you say, when you say update, it's going to like do a database update? Right. All, okay. Right. And my thought, I never do that because I'm like, I want to make sure that I do need to change it. So I'll go and query the other object and make sure that the state I want to change it to, it's not already in that state. However... In terms of performance, that means I'm doing a query. You're doing a query, but you're not triggering a whole new set of triggers, workflow, um, process builders. I think it's very worth checking. Do I actually need to? If 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 what I'm if what I if the state I need this parent object to be in is not different than what it already is, yeah, then I shouldn't trigger a whole. I shouldn't call database update on it, right? Because that triggers a whole mass of new work that's 
a ton more work than just one query. Well, we say that, but here's the the monkey I'm going to throw in that wrench. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure you nailed that metaphor, but go ahead. I'll I'll let that one slide, I guess. (laughs) It just came out that way. I I heard it as I was saying it. Um, So I I ran into a situation where I'm I'm very aggressive about making sure that I don't need to update this already. It's already in that state. I'm too. However, in, in the context of a larger org where there's so much things touching it, that one query turned into four queries because other things were firing and they were in turn causing the the system to fire that trigger again, which meant I had to, the, the code was querying it again. Um, I tried to implement my own governor system that says only run this once, but the problem is the state was changing. Yeah. So, so I need, actually, to, run again, I need right? to run it yeah, again. Right. Um, and at some point uh, we ran out of queries. Yep. We were just doing too many queries in yep. the transaction. There's only a hundred. And honestly, like it's, that sounds like a lot of queries, but in a typical, I mean, I would say typical business system, that is not a lot of queries actually. <laughs> It's not. It's not a lot of queries. No. So I don't know what to do because you know in a in a in modern ORMs object relational mapper systems, they have like for example like Hibernate and in um, eBean and uh, probably in Hibernate some of these other ones. Mm-hmm. They all have like usually at least one level of cache, if not two. And so when you say, "Hey, I need the account with ID one two three four, the first thing it does is checks its cache. And if it's got it, it just returns it to you. It yeah. doesn't go to the database. It doesn't result in a query. That's a beautiful thing, but we don't have that. No. Well, but that 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 system also requires that everything funnel through it, so that it knows when something changes, so it knows whether or not its cache is invalidated. Otherwise, you know, if, if other you things can't are in the do this with Salesforce. <laughs> otherwise, if things in the back end are making changes that you're unaware of, then your cache is is no good. Given um, it's, but it's aware. It's it, it, is, it is aware. That's the thing. Like it's you know. A smart orm is aware of all these things. I, I guess there's just that's not yeah, like you said, there's not you can't do that in Salesforce. So right, it, it's it's not it's not a um, option. Now that's not to say that you couldn't. And this is one thing where I've I've actually been thinking more about. Uh, I guess what similar to the concept of what people call uh, trigger frameworks, I think is what mm-hmm. they call them. Um, but really, the uh, it's really more a bigger idea than that. It's it's more of a caching a a. a a repository system, like a caching repository. So imagine if all your triggers that needed to access accounts went through an account repository. Mm-hmm. Well, now your account repository knows everything that people have accessed and everything that things have, people have accessed, it can keep them cached in memory. And so if you need account one, two, three, four, and this other guy already queried for it and got, or he already asked the repository, maybe the first time you asked the repository for it, it had to query that, but now it's got a cache. And so every subsequent ask for that query pulls it from cache. No more queries. And I've imagined that world and, and drooled over it. But, but you but have then, to start, you have to start from the beginning with that. Well, you do, but then but then also, you know, what fields do you query? How do you know what to query? And then, um, and then you, you have to get into the... My, my short answer is... Okay, so th- this is what I do, and and there may be people may have better ideas. I'm I'm always open to ideas on these things, but I I I have like I mean if you look at my code, I've got all these repositories. I mean basically every different object has its owner, or at least I I try to group objects into. Uh, this is this is a domain. This is an Eric Evans thing. Domain driven design, great book. Mm-hmm. Definitely everyone should read it. Even admins and consultants and developers, everyone should read this book. At least the first part, which is like I think three or four chapters. Um, but the idea of aggregates. 
So um, I'm trying to think of a Salesforce situation. What would be a good aggregate? Um, basically, an aggregate would be uh, that would map to the Salesforce notion of a master detail. So let's say you have a master object mm-hmm. and it's got some detail things. Well, the master plus all those detail things, that is an aggregate. It's basically an aggregate, meaning you're taking several objects and aggregating them into a, a group. And then you have an aggregate root. Well, that's mm-hmm. the master, right? And so when you query the master, just query all those. And, and again, you're, it's not going to be great in the Salesforce world, but I have my repository. If you query the master, you know, query this thing, which is a master, it just goes ahead and gets all the, all the details with it, detail objects mm-hmm. with it. And, well, you, well, hang on. Let me let me finish, and and I will query like on the master and the detail objects the fields that I currently know need to be queried. I'll add them on there, right? And and that works for now. But let's say you know two weeks from now I'm implementing some other feature and I need some additional fields. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just keep adding to that repository. Even though the original use case didn't need them, and it's going to be querying fields it doesn't need. That has not yet once bit me. I just keep adding to that repo- that repository class. I just keep adding to that list of fields. Yeah, and it's just not a problem so far. I mean, the problems of not using a repository class are way bigger than using one where you're sometimes querying fields you don't need. That's just almost a non-problem. Yeah, but the repository kind of solves the the kind of single entry point for getting information, but it still has a has a potential to bite you in terms of what's in there at what point in time. Because you have to be able to invalidate your cache. Yes. Yep. And as if you're going through a repository it can invalidate its own cache. Yeah, but the, the big crux with uh, Salesforce is that Workflow and Pro- Process Builder doesn't participate in that conversation. It's modifying data as well. It is, but it happens at defined times. Well, so, so, I mean, all triggers run and all workflow run, and they don't, they don't intermix unless a whole cycle gets kicked off again. Right. But they still... But fr- it, when that cycle kicks off again, you're still in the same transaction, and that's the problem. You're not getting a new transaction, so you're not you're the, the new transaction would invalidate your cache for you, but you're not getting a new transaction, so that data is now stale. Yeah, I have to think about that. Yeah, that just that that calls for another one of these. You can't do this with Salesforce. <laughs> so yeah, this, I mean, one of those things where every time you try to do something the right way in Salesforce, it just bites <laughs> you in the ass every time. Yeah, because I've drooled about it and thought about it and went down that path, and then I realized, crap, there's a bunch of other stuff. This is also this is and this gets back to and again Jeremy's best practices. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Any objects that you get to the point where this requires triggers on this object, my rule: no workflow on that object, and no, of course, no process builder flows on that object. It's just mixing these. You are asking for trouble. Yeah, just and and this is a great example of that. It's really hard. There, there's what, some things- which is harder? Which is harder? Mixing them and hoping for the best or not mixing them and just doing it right? Which is harder in the long run? Well, so, so let, me, let me present this scenario. The scenario is that there are certain things that can be coded and the process is fairly static. It's not going to change very often, if at all. However, there are parts of the process that will change. There are parts of the process where new logic will have to be implemented because they're just thinking it through or they just know it's going to. Yeah. And so for those, we move them into a process builder. We move them into workflow or something because that can be easily changed without coding and all that kind of stuff. So, Oh, and without testing, too. And, in and without testing, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, this awesome. is, these are not systems I work on. <laughs> That's just, I mean... I mean, is, is it not a valid use case of workflow and things for things that are going to be dynamic and change and need to be configurable to, to, to you know, use the right tool for that job? When, when workflow causes unpredictability uh, amongst my most important things, then no. That's when I... No, workflow is not a valid tool at that point. 
Mm. It, it's preventing me from doing the things the right way. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, just, I, I feel it's, like it's no longer the best tool for the job. And that's my principle. I'm going to use the right tool for the job. And at that point, workflow is no longer the right tool for the job. Because you stuck a trigger on there. Because I need, if uh, yeah, if I need to use triggers now and I'm in the apex land and it's preventing me from being able to do things without, listen, here you are stuck in a quagmire of, of hitting limits and you're stuck and you can't, you can't build things. You're, you've got to figure out a way to re-engineer all this. And now the problem is you've got all kinds of triggers, all kinds of classes, multiple teams that have crudded their crap all around this. You've got workflow, you've got process builders. And what are you going to do now? It's going to take you six weeks to work you out of this problem. And what does that do for the business? Now they're going to miss deadlines. It's going to take you forever to fix this thing, which is not even that valuable of a, probably a new feature to begin with anyway. It's, this is not good for this is not good for the client. This is not good for the business. No, I, I agree. I just, I just, I just feel like it's, it's such a strong arm to just say, okay, I need to attach a trigger on this. So now, every anything that's been touched, John, by it's not a strong well. arm. It's the right thing to do. Is it? It's the, yes, it, it is. In this case, yes, it is. And it's. I know you feel bad about. This. I just have a hard time. You believing feel bad that. about it. You shouldn't feel bad about it. <laughs> don't let don't don't get don't let people have enough rope to hang themselves. But there are there that's are what you're doing. Uh, so so. It, it, there are things that workflow is better at than code. Uh, email alerts, for one, because you can use templates and you can you can define who gets it and when and change who gets it yeah, and but when. Email alerts don't trigger tra database transactions, so I'm fine with that. Okay, so we make but no an exception field updates. For, for no alerts. field updates. We make an exception for alerts and but just no field updates. No is field what you're updates. Saying. No. I mean, I'm not saying this for no reason. I mean, we've we've, got, we've just talked about it. There's actually great reasons why you shouldn't mix these things. I'm also, I mean, listen, I'm also Salesforce it, is giving you all kinds of tools. It's your job to figure out how to use these tools. That's true, but we, we don't sit down. It's not like we're building a software application. Just bear with me. Oh, this is hard, but I'm going to try. <laughs> it's not like we're sitting down and saying, okay, we're going to build this quoting engine, this tool, and it's going to do this, this, and this, and this, and we're having this architecture, upfront architecture design system, and we're divvying up the work and things like that. No, it's, it's we have this deadline, uh, we need this and that can be done with workflow. We have this, it can be done with process builder. We have this and that can be coded. So, you know, the team gets broken up and divided into these pieces. Bad idea. Bad way to split up a team. Again, again, I think every time I come up with an issue, I feel like it's coming back to team dynamics. That, that somehow we've, we've created these silos in our work and we're not communicating. We're not coming up yeah. with best solutions. However, sometimes it's, it, that, that's, that's true on a pure project where we're starting from scratch. But there's also the case of systems that we come into where there's already development, there's already stuff there, you know, and it, that's that's far more difficult. But just keeping it simple in terms of a new project, I, I don't know how to solve for that. I don't know how to say, okay, we need a reset button. We need to change how we do things. Especially if I'm not really empowered to. I'm, I'm usually just the, the developer that comes in hey, to do some stuff. I'm not, I'm not empowered either necessarily. But what I can do is say, here's the situation. Here's a predicament we're in. And here's a way out. I may not be able to make the decision every time, but at least I can make my case. I guess the other question is, when you make that case, you're basically saying, I'm, I want to I want to lead this charge. A lot of times I do, yeah. I mean, that's what I get paid for sometimes. But I mean... I, I don't think I get paid to lead things. I, I get paid okay. to, to develop. And that, that's how I look at it a lot of times. I get paid to write software. I'm, I'm, I think I'm more opinionated than you are probably. 
Maybe. Well, I, I'm, I'm very opinionated. I'm I, you are, I, so that's probably I like things to work a certain way and be a certain way, I and I get I'm, frustrated when it's not. But at the same time... I, I'm I'm more bitchy than you are. You know what? <laughs> Unlike Sheryl Sandberg, I'm totally okay with being called bitchy. You can call me bitchy all day long because it's for a reason. Well, he, here's my dilemma. So I do care, and I have very strong opinions, but I don't want to cross the line. Or is it where, bossy? Is it bossy, bossy or bitchy? Whatever. Both. Whatever. Both. I'll, both are, I'll wear it with both a badge are on the, of honor. Both are on the do not use list for the year. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. whatever that list is. We never did that, by the way. We got to find that. That was fun. Anyways, I don't want to cross the line of leadership. I, 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 I enjoy doing my pieces. And but what I, happens when you get stuck and you literally can't move forward because the system has tied itself into knots? I just feel like... What do you do? I, I, I've done this for so long, and I, I've been in positions where I, I've been the leader, and I, I've, I've, you know, driven standards and all that kind of stuff, and I found it really exhausting. I know, you had some, you had some I, bad experiences. And I, well, not only that, I, I, you know, as I got more into my career, I was like, this is what I'm good at, this is what I enjoy, this is what I want to do. However, that means I have to give up the reins. I have to say, okay, I'm not going to control this. I'm not going to mentor people. I'm not going to go and, and fix other people's code. I'm just going to stick to my own little world. And that that puts me in a position where, yes, I'm happy because I'm coding my, my own little thing here, but I'm also unhappy because I see the things around me and I don't like it. I don't like the way it's being done. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't argue with that. I mean, if you're doing the type of work you want to do, that's good. You probably are happier than I am in in your career. <laughs> well, it's, so how it's can, a, so I'm not going to argue no, with you. No, I mean, it, congratulations. I'm, I'm, saying, my, I'm saying my worlds are clashing. It's the, well, the yin yeah. and yang is right. is uh, is, is it's just out, it's out of balance. It's out of balance. Yeah. <laughs> you <need> some <laughs> part of my happiness comes from working in a really great environment, but the other people, the the other things are not the way I want them done. Yeah. And in order to for them to be done the way I want them, to, I have to cross over into that line. But I don't want to cross over into that world. No, you just, I mean, I think you I think you do a pretty good job of just doing the best you can. I mean, obviously, if you do find yourself in a quagmire and the system is tied in knots, you do what you can to get past that. It may not be some grand rebuild, and I don't even recommend necessarily grand rebuilds. And I usually actually recommend against like giant refactorings. Uh, I mean, I I mean like giant ones. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and no, I mean you. you probably you're like, okay, well, what I need to do to get past this, I can build the thing that I've been asked to build here. And that's what you do. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's probably what I do in a lot of cases too. Yeah. But just sometimes I'm in a position where I can, okay, I can actually, I'm in a position of leadership here and I can help put this client down a better path. And I feel like that's why, that's what parts, partly what separates me from half these other jackasses with 82 certifications. <laughs> Well, I, I, I do think that the quality and experience and really caring about the end result for the client is is a is a big factor. Um, but it, it's it's tough to balance that desire to want to produce the best you can for a client with the other factors. That's true. The stuff that and, you can't control. Right. And that's where you know that's one of the things I feel, I feel like as I'm because I'm kind of in, you know I'm getting some gray hair gray hair here. <laughs> I've I've done this for a while, and and you do learn you do get some wisdom on when. When to let it go, yeah, or when to make kind of not want to say make a stand, but you know make a case at least, yeah. And that's just I don't know, and I don't think I get that right every time, but I probably do better than I did you know five years ago. That's true. Um, so you want to move on? Yep. Uh, I have I have two things. One, I thought I'd uh, 
bring up your conversation that you had on Twitter if you want to do that. Oh, did you go look that up? No, I didn't. But I, 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 I uh, want to. I want. I wanted to hear it from you here the, with Peter Coffee. Yeah, I called it uh, AI. Ki- ki- uh, I'm sorry, AI killed the engineering star. Oh, I. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't even know how to go look that up. But yeah, no. Um, I, I saw Peter Coffee and someone. I don't even remember who it was. Um, and Peter Coffee's, you know, makes, basically making this argument that in ten years, there, you know, we won't need coders, or certainly not to the degree we do today. Yeah. And people were kind of pushing back on that, and and I did too. And, and I'm like, well, I, there's so many things. That, <laughs> there's so many angles you could take. And and you know, and I, my first comment actually was like, well, let's, you know, let's set up what the mind, conversation was about. Though. I don't even remember. I mean, I don't. Well, it was, a bit, it was the way you explained it to me. At least the snippet you gave me was that artificial intelligence would end up writing code that we wouldn't be coding anymore. I think that in the was future. part of Peter's argument. Yeah. And this is as people don't know this is Peter Coffee. He's a he's uh, works for Salesforce. Mm-hmm. I don't know even know what he's. Something VP of strategic he's, he's planning or something, chief strategic research, of futurism. Yeah, so he's one of those <laughs> things. And I mean, his big job is actually just getting up and giving talks, and also being like he he warms up the crowd for Benioff at yeah. events stuff like that. That's that's his deal. He's kind of an MC in, in ways. He's he's actually really good at that. Yeah, I mean, I like no, he is. I mean, I've never. I don't think actually. I don't think I've ever met him. I don't think I have. I think but so. I mean, I think he does his, his job well, and 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 he's got some really interesting ideas. And I certainly don't agree with everything, but that's that's totally okay. That's what makes but the world they're, interesting. But they're fun intellectual conversations yes. to have. So anyway, I, I kind of stumbled upon this Twitter conversation of him and some other people, and and he's talking about how you know we're we're not going to have we're just we're not going to need coders, which is weird because Salesforce is one of these companies that not only do they employ thousands of coders, but they're have they're doing the thing where they're either opening offices all over the world mm-hmm. uh, to get more coders, or they're H one being people into the country f- for coders. And it's like, and I asked, and I asked one of my questions to Peter's like. Wait a minute. How many coders does Salesforce employ? You're telling me these people are all going to be out of a job? I mean, we're H1 being these people in. Yeah. And and, and Salesforce is a company that actually is doing it right. They actually pay their they don't enslave their H1Bs. They actually pay them uh what are, what are the prevailing wages? Mm-hmm. You know, and they're bringing in s- smart people. Um so you what you're telling me this this is all gone? And and my other argument is like look at what Salesforce development looked like 10 years ago compared to what it looks like today. Other than the fact that we've got lightning it looks identical. It works the same way. It's the same crappy tools, the same crappy language. Nothing's changed. We have a few more methods on the string object. Okay. Yay. You know, you expect me to believe that in 10 years, we're not going to have coding? I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I think things will change. I mean, and and I think there are things that rec- currently require code that 10 years from now may, may not require code. I think we'll be coding in different ways. I mean, someone's got to build these AI tools that write the code. Well, true, but I mean, uh, e- even uh, I-, I think I brought it up before. Uh, I think there was an article from Google that they were building uh, an AI system that coded itself, so it-, it actually wrote its own code. Code, yeah. But it has to understand the business problem, and that's just something that someone has to tell it the business problem. Yeah, someone has to tell it. I mean, what hard, the issue hard is and- problems are not are always are not going to go away, and humans are always going to have to solve these. Mm. Um, we're going to be using. I mean, AI is a tool. Mm-hmm. Again, it just goes back to tools. Like code is a tool. In the Salesforce world, if you think about that, you know, process builder is a tool. All these things are tools. And will the tools get better? I hope they get better. But I feel like when Salesforce says we're not going to need coders anymore, because that's kind of been their mantra it's, it's is no software. And, well, and no. My first comment to this to this group of people was like, listen, Peter Coffey, it's his job. It, it, it's his job to sell a low-code platform. Salesforce yeah. is a low-code platform, and his job is to sell it. 
If anyone thinks that Peter Coffey's job is not to sell Salesforce, then they're kidding themselves. That is yeah. his number one job. Yeah. Salesforce is an extremely sales-driven company. Salesforce does not sell itself. Yeah, unfortunately. And I, unfortunately. But, no, I, I agree. And I, but I think the low-code aspect is, is the crux to the conversation in that when, when he says we're not getting any coders, he's, he's talking about us, not necessarily the Salesforce devs. He's talking no, about us. He's talking about us. I know. You know, it's, it's going to be process builder and flow, you know, take over the world, all, uh, process and flow, all the things. I mean, you know, when, when Salesforce stops creating new developer certifications, I'll start believing that we, they're not going to need coders. <laughs> well, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. You cannot reconcile the prognostications with the facts on the ground. Well, I, I, I think Peter tends to, to live in a, in a future that's 10 years from now. And, and well, he doesn't have to build anything. He just gets up there and sells and talks and warms up crowds. <laughs> He's got a good job. <laughs> I'd take it. <laughs> <laughs> No, but like I said, I mean, he's he's cool, and he's got a he, he's very interesting ideas, and he's one of these out there thinkers, and I always like hearing him talk. And when you know when Matt Morris has interviewed him, or when yeah. the code coverage guys, I mean, it's always a great uh, interview, and it's always good to you know hear what he has to say. But yeah, his job is to sell Salesforce. What else can you say? That's his <laughs> that's his gig, you know. Yeah, I. I... I always find his conversation interesting, but like I think I said this before when we talked about the interview you had with Matt, I always feel like I'm pulled out of the intellectual conversation when he has to add in the Salesforce part, where he has, where you know he'll be talking about AI and technology oh, yeah. and and where technology is going to go, and then at some point he has to you know, stick that Salesforce nugget in there, yeah, you know, and it feels like oh yeah. that ruined it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And not not, yeah. Because, not anything against Salesforce, it's just no. that it, it feels like a sales pitch at that point, right? You know, it it, yeah. it ceases being this intellectual conversation of you know what could be or what should be, and then it, it becomes a sales pitch, and that, that yeah. you know that just pulls me out of the conversation. I just one other thing, you know, I don't know if we're wrapping up or what, but uh, did you see? I'm um, Google, and I guess it's been a, around for a while, but I didn't know about it. And they have a they have a database called Spanner, Google Spanner. No, I haven't heard of that. And it's um, spammer or spanner. Yeah, spammer, with a, yeah. It's a giant spamming system. <laughs> no, spanner, spanner with an N, with an N as a Nancy. With a Nancy, yeah. Okay. Uh, but it's it's the idea that you know it's a it's a actual it's not some like NoSQL you know eventual consistency. It's a full ACID compliant transactional database that also scales horizontally, basically ad infinitum hmm. and globally. And which is weird because, you know, you've got Cap Theorem, which if people, anyone who's gotten into NoSQL or whatever, you probably, or if you had to scale and shard databases, it's the, what is it, um, what is Cap Theorem? Consistency, you, you can pick two of these things, consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. I think if I'm, uh, hopefully, I, hopefully I've got that right. Basically, like, if you want your database to be completely consistent, meaning like, when I query it, I see the same thing you query, no matter where we are in the world or whatever, mm -hmm. then it's not going to have full availability or it's going to have to be partitioned. Right. There's a, you, two of these three things, right? It's almost like the, the project manager, Golden Triangle, whatever they call it, like, what is it? Time, cost, and money, like pick two of the three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, right. can, you can have two levers, but not three. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be now cheap and good quality. Right. right. <laughs> um, but apparently they have, you know, magically uh, either, either proven that thing theory to be false like it, you you can you can't have it all <laughs> interesting as uh, marissa meyer would say <laughs> <laughs> um or or they've just gotten it, they've you know they've they've minimized the sacrifices you have to make across those three points of the of the triangle 
Um, but yeah, asset transactions and, and SQL semantics with, without giving up horizontal scaling and high availability. But this is within a single location? No, it's and the thing is, is like I was reading like some stuff so trying to figure out the details. So I kind of went digging around and apparently the way they've done this is they've, you know, the it the the system is spread across these data centers across the world and it doesn't go across the internet. Google has built like these direct private fiber lines between all these things across the wow. world. And it's just like incredibly low latency and fast or something. And it's not, it's not my it's not one of these like uh, like MariaDB or like what uh, Amazon's done where they they kind of take my MySQL, the open source project, and then customize it. You know, mm-hmm. kind of they have their own build of it or whatever. Right. It's apparently some ground up thing. I guess one of the disadvantages is it doesn't support, I mean, it doesn't support full SQL. It, it is SQL, but there's like, it's got its own syntax. Not yeah. its own dialect, but its own probably, it's probably a subset. But I mean, it still does like full joins and all that. I, I've never used it, but I'm just trying to figure, I was trying to figure out what is, what is the catch here? Um, well, the catch is it was really expensive for them to build. It is, but it's it's part of the GC, it's part of GCP, you know, Google Cloud Platform, and it's just one of their. You know, but I mean, they, back to that, back to the theory. I mean, it it's not that it was cheap to build. It's oh, just no, they're no. gonna they're gonna no. if they sell if they sell it, are they gonna try to recoup that cost? Is it just are sure because they, they're selling Google Cloud Platform? They they want they're in the cloud platform wars longer there with. I mean, it's if you look at but to compete, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to compete on price point, right? Well, this the is, technology might be great, well, but so first of all, price is a big thing, right? You know, because you got AWS who just is relentless without the Walmart, right. right? They just are constantly dropping prices, and Azure always has to respond, and IBM and Rackspace right. have to respond, and, and Google has to respond. But this is actually Google's got a little bit of a different approach. I mean, I think when you look at Google's the GCP offering, mm-hmm. it's a little more organized and has a more of a an approach and focus to it. Whereas you, when you look at AWS and all their service offerings, it's just like, here's all of our crap. A lot of it's redundant. A lot of, you know, we're just throwing it all out there and you can take how you want and piece it together, how, piece it together however you want. Yeah, and I think I would say Azure kind of follows that model too. That, I see, that, I don't know, I don't, I just, I don't know enough about Azure. But I mean, it's 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 the same a la carte menu system. You you have all these different components you can include or not include. You can just it's like this menu. You just pick and choose what you want to include and use. Yeah, and pay for it. But right. are you saying this is more of a self-contained kind of organized environment? Well, this is, where... just, this is just their this database, and it's called what is it called? I forgot already. Um, Spanner, and you know because Google has they've got the Big Table, they've got several mm-hmm. uh, you know data persistence services. This one's but you know Big Table, it it does not achieve this cap theorem, um, you know whatever like. It doesn't overcome it the way hmm. that this supposedly does. That would be, uh, and, but but I want to I want to make sure I don't lose this fo- your, to p- point. Your question, which is, aren't they just competing on price? Well, I think this is. I don't think Amazon has this. They don't have something like this. So this is a way for them to. This is a differentiator. True. And and also this is interesting from an Oracle perspective because. You know, Oracle's out there and... Yeah, why hasn't Oracle done this? <laughs> well, I mean, this is... Their their big thing is that you're trying to sell database in the cloud now. And the, and their their thing is like, we've got the best database in the world. And Oracle is a really awesome... There's a reason why the biggest checks that Mark Benioff writes every month are to Oracle. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. Because it's the best database out there. I mean, it comes to chat to a a company that has a, probably a higher evil index than most companies in the world. But... Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it's really good, and this is this is really interesting because I don't. I mean, I think there are aspects of this Google Spanner that I'm not even sure how well Oracle competes with those. So I don't know. 
it's something to check out. Yeah, I mean, it sounds interesting. I, I, it sounds like something that Salesforce could re-leverage in the in the in the sense that, you know, the data is it doesn't care where the data is if it's that spread out and it's just a single query to well, get that information. See, Salesforce, their answer is partitioning. That's why you have like NA one thousand and sixty four nowadays, right? Yeah, but I'm looking at it more from a perspective of of. Uh, uh, governance, compliance, and and uh, all those kind of things where the, the data has to be within that country and those kind of things. True, that yeah. kind of segmentation, data sovereignty. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the companies here in in you know headquarters here, but they want access to that data, but they actually have to split it out into different instances to get that data and somehow sync it with some data warehousing. And it's just that seems like a, a, a that seems like something that would solve that. Yeah, hmm, I don't know. I mean, the data would still be where it's at, but you have access to it through a single flow. Yeah. At least if I'm understanding that, that technology and, and how it works and, and the purpose of it. I mean, this is, again, this is, the first, this is the first time I've seen something claiming what they're claiming with consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is it, I could write a query that says select all accounts, and it would pull data from California, from UK, from Australia, whatever, and I'd get my data. Well, the question is, is if, if you did that query and I did that query, while many transactions are in flight, are we going to get the same answer or not? And that's that's the consistency part. And that's the okay. part that, you know, again, you have to pick two or three of these things because theoretically, it's impossible to pick all three. Right. And, but yeah, I mean, people, you know, I've, I was reading some comments and people are just saying that the way they accomplished this was, you know, gobs and gobs of hardware th- and in, in, to a degree that there's only basically two or three companies in the world that could throw this much hardware at the problem. And then also Google's, you know, SRE experience, so site reliability engineering, mm-hmm. um, that combined with all these private, these private networks, private low latency networks that connect these different, you know, regions together, I guess. I don't, I don't know. It's, it sounds it's very Skynet, man. I know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, and so, supposedly they have some kind of ninja, you know, two-phase commit. So two-phase commit is basically the the, the commit protocol that uh, any distributed transaction takes. You know, one, one you know, when you've got a distributed transaction, you've, you've got one side that says, okay, I got it. And the other side, the other guy says, okay, I got it. And then once they both receive that message back and forth, then it's considered committed, you know. Um, but they have, you know, Spanner uses two-phase, this is from their this is their documentation, Spanner uses two-phase commit and strict two-phase locking to ensure isolation and strong consistency. Two-phase commit has been called the anti-availability protocol because all members must be up for it to work. So then that's what mm. you want to be two-phase commit, then you're going to, you may not have availability, right? So Spanner mitigates this by having each member be a Paxos group, which I know nothing about, thus ensuring that each two-phase commit member is highly available, even if some of its Paxos participants are down. So someone smarter than me can interpret that. But <laughs> this well, is cool because it gives small teams and smaller budgets ability to build like really good systems yeah. based on these cl- this cloud these cloud services. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, cool. I'm excited. Yeah, I, I just, I just think, I just think that there's such an influx in technology these days that it's, it's always been growing fast, but the creativity of this kind of distributed model, you know, of these hosted clouds and everything is just really, it's been interesting. I know, and just the the way with with cloud and technology and, and two factor, uh, sorry, twelve factor. I was yeah. off by a factor of ten there. <laughs> <laughs> two phase, twelve factor. Um, yeah, I mean, the way you build apps for modern, you know, s- software as a service or just any apps is it's just so different, yeah. right? 
So but it has to be given the nature of, of well, how we consume. It's just that if you want to if you want to be able to scale, if you want to be able to do it, if you only want to be able to pay for what you use, right? All these different things that cloud enables, then then that's how you have to build your apps. Yeah, but the the term app is different than it used to be. An app was something you ran on your desktop, and that was the only place to run it. There was there was no mobile devices. There were no web pages. There weren't there weren't all these things. These IoT devices now. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh, Series and Alexas of the world, you right. know. But were, you were, had, but you had, um, you know, enterprise, you know, f- financial apps and enterprise resource planning apps, and you did, but you always knew what it was going to run on. You always knew it was going to run on a on a desktop. You know, now we we really have to consider what it's going to run on it and what the capabilities are. Well, and 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 that's why it's <laughs> kind of back to our three tier architecture, like. Usually the client is just a UI layer. Like you don't, you don't, you're not building all the smarts, and the client's not driving the transaction. It's just, it's just communicating to some API that is in the cloud, and behind that API, that's where you've got all this crazy cloud technology. And you know, maybe you're doing, you know, maybe it's a microservice architecture, right? Mm-hmm. And it can, you know, you've you've got again, you're back to only paying for what you use and being able to scale up to, you know, to huge factors that were, never would have been possible before. But you sure. have to. You can't build a monolithic application like the way you used to build them. Well, no, and I, I just, I just think when I when I say you know build on the desktop is the pipe is different. You know, with the desktop you're plugged into the network or you're on some Wi-Fi and your pipe is pretty big. But when you start tossing in uh, IoT and you toss in mobile and different types of networks that they're connected to, your pipes you know vary in size. The amount of information you can push and pull varies in size. Performance is a big issue. There's a lot of things to consider. You know, in this world of just computing everywhere yeah and so i, I just i just think that it makes things it makes things interesting it, it it complicates things um but it's it's nice to see the answers that people are producing the 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 uh, ideas that they're that are coming out of you know how to solve these type of problems yeah yeah you might remind me i thought i had an iot thing but i can't find it so uh, that'll either Never surface, or I'll have oh, to bring it up next week. Just like IoT. Yep. Never surface. No. Anyway. <laughs> well, we're almost at two hours here, John. Any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, no. I, w- I would encourage everyone to go out. And speaking of uh, cloud database, check out database.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Welcome to the world's most trusted and secure cloud database. It still is there. But if you click watch demo, you get, of course, a lead gen form you have to fill out, and <laughs> there's nothing there. <laughs> I love that. Um, reviews, leave us a review, please. If you uh, if you want to help us in any way, leave us a review on iTunes or whatever system you use. Or if you don't want to type words, at least the, the stars, heart us and overcast. Uh, overcast. Tweet us, you know, retweet our thing. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Oh, I know. It's so sad. <laughs> it's so sad. It's there. It exists. We need help. Yeah, just, just you know, share us with your friends. And if, if you have questions or topics you want us to discuss, yes. uh, it's always better if you do it now as you're, while you're thinking about it so we have time to prep. Right. Because uh, there's a cutoff point. Like if if you send something like an hour before we record, it's probably not going to, we probably already have compiled those. It's not going to make it yeah. in. But yeah, info at gooddayserpodcast.com. Info at gooddayserpodcast.com. If you've got questions, if you've got uh, topics you want us to discuss, you know, if we know anything about it at all, we might discuss it. And we are... Uh, we're still planning on an Austin trip, yeah, right? Um, May 11th and 12th, Texas yeah. Dreaming. Uh, s- sign up if you're in the area or want to or want to go to the area. There's some people that are saying, "Hey, I'd like to even come from out of town. That'd be cool too." 
We'll be there. It's going to be a, a party. Yeah, we'll do a meetup. Probably, I'm guessing Thursday night because uh, people will that are in there for that event will probably want to fly home Friday night. So I'm guessing we'll we'll meet up Thursday night. Yeah. So we'll we'll start putting together more details around that. We we got to find a place too to meet up. Yep. I mean, yeah, it depends on you know, is there are there going to be six of us or sixty of us? I don't know. So that'll that will dictate. You we mentioned should... you mentioned Franklin's, and I was like, that's in Austin. I forgot. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's one of those places that you know, there's the, like the really long line. And, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not into lines. I'm not either. But I don't know. It's. It's. It, I've never had it, but everyone swears by it, so I. I, I want to try yeah. it. No, he's Aaron Franklin. I think is his name. He's uh. Yeah. Definitely knows barbecue. Oh, Texan. Yep. <laughs> and to that, I say, good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. <laughs>